Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Clark from Mega Brands. And this podcast I'm really excited about. We have Sean Avery. If you are on Twitter in particular, I'm sure you probably follow Sean, have seen a lot of his posts. He's from Avery Company, a founding partner and CIO. They're based in Miami. First, let me turn it over to Sean and just let him tell you a little bit about his firm and and what they do. And then we can get into some stock picks and some ideas about the market. And I love the way Sean thinks. I love the concentrated nature of his portfolios, very high conviction ideas. And for the financial advisors that are listening to this podcast, Sean's available and I'll let him let you know where his his strategies are available and even what the minimums are. If we, I'm happy to put his contact information if you want to reach out to him because the, uh, in fact, Sean and I were talking, I want to get a, ble- see what a blend of the dynamic brand strategy and Sean's portfolio looks like because there's not a lot of overlap at all. And I'm guessing the risk and the return metrics are pretty spectacular. So what's up, buddy? What's going on? Thanks for the intro. Um, yeah. A lot there. We always talk on, on Twitter, the sidelines, on our phones, and it's good to get on kind of uh, a podcast together and, and just share some of our basic thoughts that we do internally and kind of just make it out to uh, everyone else. So tell us a little bit about the firm. I mean, you, you've been around for how long? Right around four or five years. Uh, really focused on everything you said. I mean, we're looking for innovators, but also transition stories. So, you know, you have that barbell mentality where any environment you can essentially find something in a world of thousands of companies that are kind of banging at it every single day and we're concentrated so it's an environment where uh, we don't necessarily need to own an index we can use what we want to own at any, any moment in any environment and that's really encouraging during periods like this where people are trying to dissect what is going on what's cheap what's expensive concentrated owning 8 to 25 companies Avery, we're very data-driven in how we go about our analysis, meaning that less than in a company or we're looking for ideas, 
uh, we have to have some sort of edge, and, and that means sort of data point that's outside of just quarterly repeated information that we all get, uh, and something a little bit more granular, whether it's, again, uh, being able to dissect job descriptions or web traffic or, or some of the other things we're seeing today, like foot traffic as it relates to COVID-19, but putting that and executing that in a strategy that is high conviction across multiple industries and sectors. And again, we're looking for the best in breed companies with dominant modes. So we're about four or five years old and have continuous to do or put that strategy to work. Uh, and there's much more there to dissect and talk about and some of the themes that we're looking at, but I think that's probably a good place to kind of start. The innovator story, I think, you know, is very focused on for investors and traders now. I mean, the momentum factor has been the single best performer. So a lot of these big innovators, people recognize. What I love about your stuff is some of your innovator names still aren't really that well known. And then the transition stories, I mean, I know personally, I'm really starting to focus on the transition stories because some of the best gains come from when things go from, you know, absolutely dreadful to just slightly less dreadful. So we have a big slug of the, you know, a lot of the brands that have done really well, like an Amazon or a Lululemon, et cetera. But I'm not sure they're going to keep up with some of the transition stories if and when we finally do have, you know, a little bit of an economic bottom, whether it's a vaccine related or just the virus runs its course or whatever. Some of the best gains might be in names like in the travel sector or, I mean, a Royal Caribbean or a Marriott or Hilton or even, God forbid, in the airlines. So I know there's one name on your list that would definitely be part of the transition stories and we can get into that one. So. Just out of curiosity, I mean, a concentrated strategy like yours, how many names do you typically have? So we have kind of a mandate of of 8 to 25, but to be honest with you, I've never gone above 20. And we don't go under 8 from a portfolio standpoint. We're right around that kind of 12 to 15 mark, sometimes 10, again, depending on the environment. I mean, in this environment where there is that bifurcation between clear winners and clear losers with the winners being at valuations in which uh, we're not comfortable necessarily paying. And that's a broad stroke comment, but something that I think is is just a, a warrant comment in, in this environment. And then the other side, which is the clear losers, where they are essentially taking on equity or debt to fund uh, cash burning operations. And th- those are some of the organizations we want to stay away from. So we want the ones that are maybe benefiting, but not benefiting as much where it's so obvious to the market or, or participants in in the market and also on the other side where they're obviously impacted because they have to shut down, but from a financial standpoint and just maybe that this has created an opportunity to create new products that may not have existed or been a priority six months ago or 12 months ago now that have moved up uh, their priority list and have maybe opened new markets, um, open new reoccurring revenue streams. So that that's kind of how we're thinking about looking at this market and putting that to work. So this environment, we're being very, very selective on both sides. We want to own winners, but we don't want to pay too much for winners, clearly. Knowing that Amazon's and some of the names you mentioned before, you're always paying up in a sense, but you're really not, right? Because you're, you're basically making some sort of hypothesis on the future and the future being however long you want it to go. And we talked before we got on was some of these companies are forcing you to look out 10, 15, 20 years, which we both agreed we're not necessarily comfortable looking out 20 years, more so three to five years maybe. And 
that's kind of the environment we're in where the winners you're, you have to looking out, you, you have to look out 20 years with the losers. You have to dissect whether the ones that are impacted are taking on too much equity or debt. And now you're in a position where these valuations, when you include debt and the equity dilution, you're actually at valuations kind of pre COVID, even though the stock price has plummeted. So that's yeah. kind of how we're thinking about and looking at this situation. I mean, you know, some of these companies that were marginal performers on the business side as well as the stock side, the now they've taken on a ton more debt. I mean, we all know debt acts like an anchor if you can't grow out of it. So, I, I mean, I know we're all worried about this year, but frankly, I'm worried more about next year when Congress backs away, who knows what the Fed can keep doing before we start to see the real reality. I think the next 12 months, Obviously, it's going to be a very important stock pickers market, kind of a this versus that, and identifying the companies that still have an edge, still are carving out a niche and and exploiting that niche and being able to expand and grow without, you know, having too much debt on the balance sheet at exorbitant yields. That's going to be like a tricky little moat to navigate with lots of piranha around. So, I know when we talked the other day, you said you have a pretty decent cash allocation currently. I've certainly been raising cash. We got about nine or 10% cash now. Is your cash, you know, raising cash just a function of, you know, some of your stocks hit some sell targets and then you're just, you know, waiting to redeploy or you're really, you know, using cash as a, or we might be in the best it can get for a while? Yeah, definitely. The first part of that is more that um, we are actually pretty aggressive net buyers in March. And it's easy to say that now uh, in August after everything, but we weren't comfortable net buyers. To be quite frank, we had a pretty clear vision and process of what we were going after. One thing that we, we emphasize a lot is continuous analysis and meaning a lot of investors, they look for the next idea once they're finished with their last idea. And we continue to have ideas that we're waiting just purely on valuation. And obviously March allowed some of those ideas that we've been holding that either we've invested in years ago that we're very, very familiar with the business and have continued to track and speak to management and, and track the, the, the thesis there. We were just waiting on valuation and executed there in March. So adding five names, again, five in a portfolio that's not extremely uh, large in terms of the number of holdings is pretty meaningful. And a lot of those holdings that we, we purchased, we all know have risen dramatically. So just one example, and again, not a recommendation to, to purchase or sale, but uh, Paycom was one that we purchased uh, at the depths of, of mid-March um, and quickly re-rated much higher and something that within, we thought this was going to be a three, five, seven year hold. And sure enough, it was a three, four month hold um, where we got to a valuation that we had uh, already established pre-COVID, post-COVID. That was really the function of of selling here over the last 30 days. But that doesn't mean we're necessarily selling because we think anything's cautious around, let's say, elections or or virus fears. It's more about redeploying that into all, uh, new ideas uh, that, again, we've done a lot of work on and doing it in two ways, either outright long position or uh, selling put options to, to build these positions. Because, again, we're in an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty. So put option selling, specifically over the last several months, has been really, really attractive. And you're talking about generating 20, 30% annualized returns on those individual put options to sell those, to collect those premiums. And that's really, really attractive. So, so yeah, we're sitting on 40 something percent cash. 
the function of valuation for the holdings that we own and sold now moving into new holdings. So that's kind of the stage we're in, which is taking advantage of the uncertainty to sell put options to build these positions back up. Again, everybody can go out and spend five basis points and buy an index ETF. So if you're inclined not to do that, or at least for part of the portfolio, you want managers and strategies that are really different. And, and I, I know we're different. Our tracking error is super high and it's by design super high. And yours is probably even higher than ours, given you're probably more concentrated. You're holding cash, you sell puts, you know, kind of waiting for the stocks that you love to come to you. I love that patience. All right, let's talk about some names because everybody right now is trying to figure out, all right, we know all the, you know, the SaaS software companies that are trading at 40 times revenues and are up three or 400% year to date. Like those things scare the crap out of me. Those typically, we all have to know that the momentum train is really fun while it lasts, but typically to use an analogy from one of my favorite movies as a kid, Silver Streak, the momentum train often drives into Grand Central. So let's talk about some names that really, they may be well known, some of these, some of these, some of these actually aren't, that have some more valuation support that aren't, you know, trading at 40 times sales and that have some pretty interesting forward-looking opportunities. One of the terms that you guys use a lot is social commerce. So talk to me about the the social commerce theme and the stock and or stocks that kind of fall into that category, because that one is pretty intriguing and we own one of those names too. Yeah, no, social commerce is a, is probably one of our top themes over the next kind of three to five years. We're, there's really that convergence between social, which I think we're, we're seeing multiple platforms on the social side, whether it's Pinterest, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, uh, to name the actual product. And these are all kind of social platforms, TikTok to be uh, very headline. And again, there's that acceleration and that incumbency that we're seeing over the last kind of four or five years, Twitter, another one, you can, whether you want to classify that as social, but combined, you really have multiple platforms now where maybe five, six years ago, uh, there was less diversity amongst the platforms. And underneath that is you have an infrastructure of a lot of these commerce tools, whether it's like the Shopify's of the world, Wix.com or, or Big Commerce, who just went public. You have these infrastructure players on the commerce side combined with the integrations with the social side. And we're really at the start of that, right? We saw Facebook, which again, is uh, the one I think you're referencing in terms of the one that we think is going to benefit the most in the social commerce theme over the next three to five years, where we think there's a valuation that's not even being attached to this currently uh, in the company. It's, it's predominantly being valued as an advertisement business still. And we think that's responsible for someone thinking kind of 12 months from now. But again, for us, it's we're thinking three to five years from now uh, and beyond that. And with the convergence of commerce and the establishment of the social players, we think we are witnessing the start of kind of your digital mall where people move on to the Facebook platform, Instagram platform for social and for kind of your magazine flip through and see kind of random things. And it's allowing Facebook or Instagram to really productize many of the millions and hundreds of millions of posts that are happening on a regular basis. And as users, the beauty of this concept is people go to Instagram and Facebook, again, not to shop. So what that ultimately means is Facebook has 
many, many shots on goals to get this right. People already go there, billion, like three point something billion across their family of apps. And over the next three to five years, as the commerce platforms and those integrations continue to enhance, we think Instagram and Facebook are going to be at the top of funnel where they're generating those eyeballs to products. And then they're able to convert at a much higher rate when essentially able to convert right on the platform and build shopping carts. And then all of that information that's being generated, instead of being driven for just pure ad, it's being driven for personalization on the commerce side. So I think from a value added standpoint to the end user, it's pretty incredible. And then as a business, you have a one-stop place where you can essentially really see your return on investment, where you're, you're deploying ads and seeing conversion right on a single platform. They'll be one of many. And this doesn't say that everything's moving towards this type of model, but we do think over the next three to five years that this model will enhance and they're going to be at the forefront of this. And we think eventually they'll be number two behind Amazon in terms of a marketplace out there. And there's a lot more to kind of the social commerce side. We think Pinterest can be involved as well. They're trying, but again, over the next three to five years, all these players are gunning for that spot and their Instagram specifically is likely going to be the leader and in a, a meaningful way. I mean, listen, anybody that follows me, I have, <laughs> I've been a bit of a basher about Facebook, but I, you know, something changed for me, not my view of Zuckerberg and, you know, how they view the world and selling our data and all that kind of, you know, rhetoric. But when they did the deal with Shopify, you know, you can just see people's passion for using Instagram and you can just see so many different tentacles coming from Instagram. And like you said, they have so many different shots on goal, given their user base around the world. It feels like they're under earning and they're finally starting to realize there's a lot more out there that can bolt onto the advertising model that can drive a lot of revenue. And, you know, from the brand relevancy perspective, I mean, maybe Facebook isn't as relevant as Instagram at this point. I don't know if you agree with that, but it, it seems like Facebook is kind of taking a back seat, even though there's still massive amounts of users, but Instagram is much more prevalent in people's day-to-day lives. For sure. I mean, I think um, from my standpoint, a lot of the hardware products, specifically Facebook portal, they're actually, they actually make really, really good hardware, but they attach the Facebook logo to it. And I didn't think that was a prudent idea. I thought potentially Facebook portal should be an Oculus product and you keep a, you build out almost like a hardware Oculus is your communication hardware platform, VR, AR, and just traditional one-to-one. And I think that would compete with things like Logitech and and some others. Logitech does keyboards and and many other things, but you could ultimately make Oculus into a well-rounded hardware technology solution. Instagram, yeah, I agree. That's the younger platform in terms of demographics, engagement. Facebook's still massive. It has a big usage rate still. We see in their earnings reports when they do report just the the sheer amount of growth they're still seeing on their traditional core platform. And I I think they've made changes over the last two to three years, specifically in the user interface that has enhanced that platform, refreshed it a little bit. And again, from we did a study from for app downloads from I think it was February to June and uh, Facebook's family of apps. And if you extract Instagram, you basically saw about 750 million downloads across their Facebook branded products. So that's incredible if you just think about the sheer size and and still 
a trajectory of the core platform. So I agree. Instagram is the crown jewel at the moment. Uh, and I've always uh, expressed Facebook probably should have taken the Google Alphabet approach where you have the parent company called Alphabet and you have the products underneath and really allow the products to shine on almost a standalone basis. But I think they're trying to obviously merge them all, be a super app in a sense. I think for yesterday, they, they said Oculus by 2022 or 2023, you're going to have to have a Facebook account to have a Oculus account. So basically, Facebook's going to be the uh, identity engine of all of this, which it's pretty cool if they can do it. They got some pushback yesterday from just Oculus developers. But again, you can see directionally what they're trying to do is Facebook has the identity engine because it has the most users, has the most information on their users, right? So Instagram, you sign up, you don't really have to provide much. And so a lot of those are anonymous. And Facebook was one of the first, so they got the most information early on. And that allows them to obviously personalize experiences and or the negative side, which is uh, having a lot of information on everybody. But again, net-net, we think this platform is ripe for commerce, is ripe for various hardware products. They just have to be smart with how they brand things. Yeah. I mean, listen, in a world where the trillion dollar club is getting bigger with the most recognizable, the most relevant brands, like if you look inside of my brand relevancy system, I mean, there's about 65 different single factors. Half of it's quant-based and half of it's qualitative-based. Facebook's right at the top. So, you know, you're a $760 billion market cap now, given their user base and the revenues that can be generated from that user base. It's hard to see that one not being a trillion plus, which is, you know, that's, I might argue that's, there's probably better gains in a Facebook going forward than even in an Apple, just because of the run that Apple's had. You know, it's Facebook has 31% just to get to the trillion dollar mark. When you do your work on these companies, do you kind of try to calculate a, a realistic fair value or do you just, you know, identify the opportunity and just know that given the current price today, it's a lot less than what we think the fair value and the ultimate value of the stock should be? Yeah, no, we think Facebook's going to definitely be a, a trillion dollar company. It's a matter of when and, and when, whenever the market decides to uh, truly re-rate it. There's been a lot of political overhang and security overhangs that have uh, continued to weigh on, let's say, just say, a, re, a multiple expansion. So if you just look at the digital ad side of the business, which is traditionally where they're playing, that market is growing at a pretty rapid clip in terms of uh, 10 plus percent over the last several years and decelerating from from mid twenties, uh, but expected to grow to around six hundred billion dollars globally in the next three to five years. Today, if they keep their current market share, and we would argue that they're probably going to increase their market share, uh, that market's going to grow to around a six hundred billion dollar digital ad industry in a sense. And if they can maintain, let's say, a twenty percent market share, even though I believe they're a little bit higher than that, around twenty five, you're talking about a market share like addressable revenue segment for them that's around 120 billion and we we know they're doing today around 35% operating margins and this doesn't include any right they're they're very clean in terms of stock based compensation and things like that so at 30% even at the low end if they have to reinvest in security and and some of the other uh, physical uh, people instead of just pure automation you're talking about 36 billion dollar operating cash flow business at that point in time right, and that's kind of three to five years out. And if you apply, let's say, a, a 20 multiple to that, just given that we're so near to, to that, that addressable market, you're talking about a $700, $720 billion company 
right then. Today, again, you said I think they're 750, 60 yeah. billion dollar market cap, strip out like 50 billion dollars of cash. So this this is an enterprise value around 700 billion. So you could say just their ad business three years out is at fair value. And that's not accounting for uh, WhatsApp monetization. That's not accounting for anything in Oculus. That's not accounting for anything in social commerce. So again, I think right now you're getting Facebook as is and, and everything else around it is, I think, high probability option. And, and that's how we look at it. So uh, I would argue their multiple should go up two, three years out. Uh, but, but ultimately, we think this is a $1.5 or so trillion dollar company with everything that we can see today with, with obviously plenty of uh, optionality as they have 3.2 billion users across the globe. And the cherry on top is they made the investment in, in uh, Geo, which is the telecom company in India. I think they have like a 10% stake now. So again, they're moving into different directions, different geographies, which kind of what does that ultimately mean down the road of, of their 400 million users in India with a 10% stake in the biggest telecom company there? Uh, and w- what kind of like monetization mechanisms can they generate from that, let's say five years from now or 10 years from now? So that's how we bring it back to kind of today and, and look at today's valuation. And I'd agree with your, your matrix that you built out for uh, quality brands with Facebook being at the top. We did the same thing uh, specifically during March and we had our whole list and, and Facebook was right at the top. And again, we understand what the holdback is today. It's the risk of a breakup. And we don't think that's necessarily a, a risk. And they're moving fast to bring everything together. So they support 150 million small businesses around the globe. I think it would be uh, disheartening to see if they, they broke up all the platforms and kind of took some of these businesses' uh, core selling channels uh, away from them. So that's kind of how we're, we're envisioning it and how we see valuation today versus where we think this thing can be in the future. Love it. I- I'll tell you, if they weren't under the microscope like a bunch of other ones, you think they would be the first, <laughs> first company in line for TikTok? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it rightfully should probably go to a, to a Facebook if, if it goes anywhere, regardless of the uh, investment banking fee the Treasury gets. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> leave, that one, I'll leave that one alone. Let's, let's switch gears to, to one area that I know everybody – is super excited about, and that's the digital payments. We both have Square and PayPal. You know, PayPal, I think to me is is a lot more well understood. There's a lot of moving parts to Square that some maybe don't understand with Cash App and a lot of the Bitcoin trading, which was a big part of their quarter, I think. But, you know, if you can give me a, a quick kind of overview of what you see in Square that's so exciting. I mean, I know it's like ARK Invest, number two holding. I know you've done a podcast or two with, with some of their analysts. I think those guys are super smart. But, you know, what do you see in Square and or PayPal if you want to jump in on that whole space that's kind of intriguing? And then we'll get to the, the other big theme of, of skills-based contractors. Sure. Yeah, I'll be quick here. It's really well published in terms of everything we've all spoken about on, on Square and PayPal. But again, we think this digital like payments in general, right? Everything that we do in life has some sort of transaction mechanism. So ultimately, everything is opportunity to all of these companies. It's a matter of being able to create these ecosystems and these networks that get you in a place where you have, again, you have merchants on one side, buyers or, and, and such on the other. Right, so it's it's really trying to develop that flywheel. PayPal has done that. They've been here the longest. Uh, they were able to do that back in the early two thousands, 
And uh, last quarter, they had 350 million users and, and nearly 30 million merchants on the platform globally, right? So they ha- they've built out this global network that is going to be extremely difficult to replicate by any standard and fully integrated with our payment networks, with Visa and MasterCard, a uh, decision they made maybe five years ago. They're kind of like a digital version of, let's say, the legacy infrastructure, but also extremely um, innovative and much deeper in terms of their product portfolio than most people think. I mean, they own Braintree, uh, Zoom in terms of a cross-border uh, payment product. Uh, they made the acquisition of, of HyperWallet, which is a, a global payout platform, which is for like kind of the gig economy. And then they purchased iZettle, which is kind of the point-of-sale products. And they continue to uh, focus on building out their product suite across the globe. So really, really well-established, like you said, highly cash flow generative, high margin business. They're accelerating in this environment. I mean, 20, they basically said every day is a Cyber Monday for them, which is incredible. And then Square for us, it's it's kind of there at the early phase of what PayPal was, right? Was trying to create that network effect, specifically on the cash app side, which is the more interesting side for most. It was also the least understood side, I, I believe maybe like three years ago, right? Everyone focused on the their seller business and their seller business is the point of sale business where, again, we've all seen it where it's either they started out with the the payment reader on the, on the iPhone or on their phone where they swipe the card and really allowing everybody and anyone to make a sale electronically. That was kind of the, the their original mission and still is. And then they accelerated that into further furthering their hardware business, which is the point of sale and that's inside, let's say, a coffee shop and and other companies have tried to recreate kind of the look and feel of the point of sale uh, to mimic somewhat of, of what Square's done. So that business is really, really established, and but still their biggest competitor there is your traditional register that's sitting in a normal location that doesn't use any of today's kind of technology. This environment has forced them to rethink that. And they on their seller side, they have a the they they acquired Weebly. Uh, several years ago, which is was the competitor to Wix. And so they've seen a, a, a massive acceleration in their online selling business. So the seller side is really, really well established and growing. Uh, obviously, this environment's a little tough for them. And what they've been able to do is fully develop an ecosystem of financial services. And next year, they're uh, going to be an established bank. They were approved for a bank charter. And that essentially gives them uh, their ability to further innovate and have a direct relationship with the Fed or the regulators and uh, really create different types of financial products, both on the Cash App side and their seller side. Cash App now has 30-something million users. So if you you just think about the this is predominantly a U.S. product. If you think about the population and then you you strip it down to a population of those that should have a card of any sort of debit card, uh, you're talking about 10, 20% of 20% market share in a a category that can potentially touch anything. So Bitcoin trading, trading in stocks, they have their, their, their boost business, which is more of a reward system inside Cash App and then peer to peer. So we think they're at the very, very early innings of creating a full uh, digital banking financial product. And ultimately we think the opportunities are endless. They take risks. They're, they're willing to create new products and they've shown that their, their hit rate is pretty, pretty high. Um, so again, th- this environment has accelerated their, their user base, which we think is increasing and improving that flywheel and that, that, that network effect that we're, we're looking for in a financial service business. 
And sure enough, they're there. So that's kind of the, I was trying to touch all the different points of, of square, which, which again, like you said, it, it's, there's a lot going on and, and trying to converge that into one cohesive um, thesis isn't as easy, which I think was the valuation gap, let's say several years ago. But now I, th- I think it's becoming more obvious to what they can become, let's say five years from now. And internationally, they haven't, I mean, they're just like inning one of expansion, right? I mean, PayPal's everywhere, which is probably why that's a $228 billion market cap and Square is $67 billion. I mean, both of them are trading about 11 times sales, which always makes me nervous. But I mean, from an opportunity set for growth, would you agree Square has the bigger global opportunity, you know, if they can be successful with that? Yeah, so growth comes in in international expansion. The thing is, when they're there, they're gonna they're starting from from scratch. They did acquire a company in Spain, which is kind of the Spanish version of of Cash App. So at least gets them a foot in the ground. They're already in the UK with Cash App. They do have seller their seller business in the UK, in Japan, Australia, Canada. But 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 again, their focus has been the US, and they're they're just starting to really prioritize international expansion. PayPal is able to move to think about their user base and then move deeper, right? So they're at that phase where they can begin to think about how do we add more value uh, from our current user base and squares at the point where they're really thinking about how do we get in and provide an ecosystem or a platform for the users that are there. And again, it's going to be through acquisitions along with uh, organic strategy, but we think ultimately they will be successful in their international expansion because they have the best product and they're very, very innovative. And, and at this stage, they're really well capitalized. So I think combined, all of that is, is important to the kind of the checkpoints for overall growth, international, organic, international acquisition growth, international as well. And, and we'll see what they do here uh, and, and continue to build out that cash app platform and their seller platform. So Again, there's two two things happening at the same time that I think uh, are super super innovative, and that's why we love the story is is they continue to surprise us even with all the different things that they're creating. I would probably put Square in you know kind of at least having a foot in the recovery basket because they you know they do have a big exposure to to restaurants and a lot of service industries that are challenged and or closed or working you know half the revenue base that they once had. So. I think Square probably has some ricochet capacity if and when people really feel comfortable about the economy getting back to, you know, full employment and 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 back to where it was pre-COVID. Would you agree to that? Yeah, that's the scary part, right? <laughs> Is that they do have they do have a, a bounce back opportunity in the seller business where, again, they they saw a record amount of leads, so new customers coming on the platform, and that that kind of combines with what I said before, where they're competing not necessarily against the other innovators, but more so against the the incumbent traditional kind of sluggish cash register that has no technology attached to it. And in this environment, you had to turn cashless or or you weren't going to make a curbside sale or takeout. You needed a digital presence online, something to at least lure them into your website to at least transact. They offered all of this. So basically the, the share of traditional players is evaporating and Square is going to be the beneficiary of that of new customers. And then at the same time, throughout their platform, they, they were offering PPP loans to support some of their, their user base. And that's important as well because it's keeping some of those afloat that 
maybe aren't transacting today. They've decided to furlough close and, and just wait it out, uh, waiting for maybe the second round here. And, and again, they're going to be a net beneficiary of that as if they're offering more PPP loans, more, more people are coming to the platform. And so, yeah, definitely in the seller business, you see the ricochet, which will be their sellers getting back to some form of normal. They will lose sellers for sure, uh, but they, they're, they're likely to gain much more from this because it's the, the combination of their sellers transacting more digitally. So remember every physical dollar, like an actual dollar that someone goes and buys a $5 coffee and hands someone a $5 bill, Square or anybody doesn't make anything off that. Visa doesn't make anything. Square doesn't make anything off that, right? Because it's just cash for cash uh, or cash for product. And in this environment, people are being much more programmed to transact with physical electronic payments. And that is something that these someone like Square actually can monetize. So if more companies, more uh, sellers are joining the platform, some of their sellers are coming back, more sellers are embrace their Square Capital business. Plus, you have uh, more sellers or more buyers transacting electronically. It's kind of like a four compounding effect that's taking place here. Talk about 12, 18, 24 months from now when hopefully things normalize. Um, so that's ultimately the ricochet effect on that side. Cash App was up 200% year over year in July. Uh, so that, that's the opposite effect that I'm guessing uh, will take place in, in the next several months or so. We're not seeing it in the data that we track, but eventually it'll happen, right? I mean, we saw Walmart, uh, Home Depot, everyone talk about just transaction volume coming down a little. Some of those follow-on opportunities, you know, it smells a lot like the things that Shopify has already monetized. So you kind of see where the opportunities lie in a name like Square. Let's pivot because we got about 15 minutes left. Let's talk about this other theme that I was really intrigued by. I mean, I, you know, maybe you could put Uber and Lyft into those categories too, but the skills-based, whether you call it sole proprietors or, or independent contractors, let's talk about a name that you like there. It's a smaller company, not as well known. I've used it for the video that we do, for the brand's video. The folks over there helped me create it and they help even edit this podcast. So talk to me about that theme and, and what you're seeing there that's so interesting that most people probably haven't even thought about. Yeah, it, it really starts with education first, where how are we training our, our, our future adults, our future workers in, in, in this world is really driving skills. So you're seeing companies like Pluralsight and some of the other educational slash uh, skill development platforms that again are harnessing skills. We're teaching people skills as opposed to teaching them or trying to teach them a broad suite of, of skills where they're not specialists in almost anything. And as we go down that roadmap of skill development, ultimately, people will have a specific skill that they thrive at, right? And using data to, to, to better understand who's better at what, I think that is the future of education. We've been saying that for several years. And what ultimately other side of that is what are the platforms that benefit from skills developed working population is something like the skill-based economies, right? Where some would say gig economies, freelance economies, but independent work, right? We, there's all different types of names, but these are sole proprietorships where they have a skill and they want to put it to use. And I, I, I would argue that let's say like the Ubers and Lyfts, no one's again being uh, trained in, in, in school to, to be a Lyft driver, right? But 
being trained to be a, a designer, right, for uh, in, in Adobe and some of their various products or Autodesk with, with CAD and all these other kind of digital native solutions and skills, company like Fiverr, right? So that's the one that we're referencing here. And Fiverr is a platform where we use it, you use it, and you have almost 3 million users now on the platform. And as, again, the educational system pushes people towards skills, Fiverr is a landing spot where you can transact digitally and seamlessly. So if you, if you think about the problem in freelancing in general, the, the biggest issue there is freelancers and even those looking to buy work, right? If I, if I wanted someone to make a logo, I would have to go and ask you, ask a friend and, and try to figure out where can someone make me a logo? This is just an example. And that person making the logo has to really scrap to try to figure out how to find work um, and kind of go project by project. Something like Fiverr basically condenses that time frame of finding on both sides, right? So really creating this two-sided marketplace. And what they've done really, really well is, is instead of making it kind of like an auction base, like let's say Upwork, where you go in there and you say, hey, I want a someone to create a logo, I'm willing to pay 200 bucks, and uh, you get maybe three or four offers for projects, and maybe there's some negotiation happening. There's still some friction in that in that transaction right there. Uh, this is somebody saying, hey, I'll make you a logo for 50 bucks with two revisions. Okay, great. So it, it becomes and looks and feels more like a traditional e-commerce model where you go on to Amazon and you buy a toaster for 50 bucks and you know kind of what you're getting. The deeper part of this stuff is, is how these marketplaces, the engines are, are these review systems, right? Yelp really pioneered this a long time ago with just uh, reviews and you would kind of use them because they've built up a subset of reviews where you trust kind of a thousand reviews, not just one. Um, and that thousand reviews is just as good as your friend telling you, Hey, use this person, uh, or go to this restaurant. And that same thing is happening on Fiverr. So as that ecosystem grows, we think there's continued evolution of network effect that's building. It's a two-sided marketplace like Etsy, like Amazon. And we think ultimately three, five, seven, 10 years from now, as more and more people, and this is only accelerating it, realize that they can have a career actually utilizing their skill and utilizing a platform like Fiverr, for example, and they won't be the only ones, uh, that they can monetize that skill and kind of manage their own time uh, more effectively than being a marketing designer at a company that they're there nine to five. They can actually just create logos and pamphlets and whatever designing material they want. So Fiverr is sits in that category from a financial standpoint, they're generating roughly like $200 million in revenue. So not that big in the grand scheme of things, but we did some work around uh, the size of this market. And we think uh, essentially this is a 15 to 20, like $5 billion market. And how we really thought about that was going to the census um, or the BLS to look at labor and basically looked at all the different job functions that are out there and how many of those we think can go digital. And then how many of those are more likely to convert to this type of work. And we ultimately found out that we think 15 to $25 billion or so um, is the total opportunity. And they'll be one of the big winners there. I mean, geez, I just looked at the chart. God bless you. 23 to 116 since <laughs> April. Uh, <laughs> what a return. I mean, that's a 400% return since April. 
in a company that most people don't even know. So that, that, that's the kind of stuff like when I, I, I geek out when I look at people's presentation materials, because, you know, listen, I'm the guy who talks about big brands. And so, you know, a lot of the names in the brand's portfolio aren't necessarily names that most people don't know. I mean, my shtick is brand recognition, particularly for the consumer, is one of the most important thing, along with brand relevancy, whereas you have some names that most people just don't understand. And, and, and that's, you know, your returns are terrific. I mean, what I love about both of our portfolios is we have tremendous returns relative to the market, but we do it in such radically different ways. And a name like Fiverr with a $4 billion market cap that's kind of in the catbird seat for a trend that's just developing is one of those stories that's pretty intriguing. And the ways to get into these things, again, like I said before, is selling put options is, uh, you know, like you have a long-term thesis and selling put options to a name to try to get in um, is always prudent, especially with things that are, are volatile. And again, the story is not that volatile. The, the stock is, um, but the, and we're very, very familiar with, with everything they're, they're, they're doing. Uh, we were investors in Wix many years ago now, it feels like, and um, their CFOs from there. So we, we understood him and how he manages his business historically. And he was widely successful there. Again, there was, there was different things outside of even just the business and we all know, like a lot of people know Fiverr, you know, um, they just don't realize that this is a publicly traded company and that there's much more to it than simply just, hey, I went on there and bought a logo. Um, and it gets really, really interesting when you start to dig into the details. And we're more than happy to, to do that with anyone if, and if they wanted to. We have our whole deck on why. Um, and even yourself, obviously, we, we've talked about it in the past. So, mm-hmm. um, so Yeah. Well, listen, we got about literally about five minutes left and I'll let you uh, do the dealer's choice. Um, You have a couple of names also that are, one is not very well known at all in the autonomous pharmacy. And one is probably well known, but is, you know, on one knee, given the things that have happened with COVID in the physical fitness space. So I'll, I'll let you decide which opportunity you think is is intriguing or, you know, which one you're more excited about long-term or, or what. So I'll, I'll let you decide which one that is. Oof. Um, <laughs> let's, let's do a 30 second pitch of Omnicell and, and the rest in planet fitness. So Omnicell medication management in half of the top 300 health systems in the U S big problem in uh, medication management. There's a lot of errors. There's theft. There's a lot of money spent on technicians that aren't doing the, the, the work that they actually signed up to, to do, right? And they basically have medication management cabinets across the health system for managing inventory. They have a centralized pharmacy at the, the bottom of the hospital system, which you pour 33,000 SKUs and it automatically sorts and, and monitors what uh, medications you have in the system. And then they're wrapping technology and cloud software now uh, around it all. Uh, for analytics and insights. So really interesting story, founder-led. Randall Libs is the CEO, founder. Really strong team. They just made an acquisition the other day. So again, they're, they're a, from an economic mode standpoint, they're the clear leader. They have high switching costs, uh, massive network effects now. And that's kind of the general story there. And, and, and in this environment, you can actually, uh, uh, we think uh, it's, it's very attractive. Now, Planet Fitness is, uh, I guess you can call it health. But it, I mean, it is the, we all know what's happening in, in this environment in COVID where 
this is actually a new name for us, right? This is an opportunity that's being presented based and driven from because of COVID where uh, gyms and uh, a lot of obviously brick and mortar, anything has been impacted tremendously. And we appreciate the story there uh, for multiple reasons, mostly being that they are the Walmart of gyms, right? They have 2000 locations. They're 10 times the size of the next biggest a low cost competitor. What they have going for them is it's a really low asset light business, right? So they franchise of their 2000 locations, they're franchising roughly 1900. Uh, They have around 100 that they they operate themselves, which for us is a good thing, right? It it allows us to understand that the management team knows how to own and operate still 100 locations and, and actually can feel the pain of, let's say, what these franchisees are going through today. And the, the biggest beneficiary of, of this environment in terms of gyms is going to be them because a lot of the 35,000 or 40,000 gym locations in the U.S., most of them are single-owned and can't afford a situation where revenues drop to essentially zero. That puts them in a tough spot as Planet Fitness sits here as an asset light business where their franchisees are mostly very sophisticated, where the average one owns roughly around 10 and spread across different regions, which allows them to navigate some of the, the closings in their states. If they own some others in other states. And a lot of private equity groups are also franchisees of their businesses. They also sell equipment to their franchisees, right? So there's a couple different, if you, if you strip out their, their economics or, or their business model, is they have their corporate locations, around 100 locations of the 2000, 1900, 2000 is, is franchised. They generate roughly 7% royalties off that. That royalty has around 85% uh, EBITDA margins on it. So super cash flow generative for each location that opens up. 15 million members or so across their base. They sell equipment to their franchisees. So at the onset, $600,000 to $800,000, it costs the franchisee to build it out. Because they have scale, they have that, that those 2,000 locations, they're able to go to the suppliers and essentially request for uh, lower cost uh, equipment, uh, right? So they have the, the leverage uh, that a single uh, mom and pop shop couldn't. And then they require the, the franchisee to repurchase every five to seven years to essentially make sure that their gyms are, are first class. So again, that 7% royalty, that, that reoccurring equipment sale, this is a reoccurring model. And again, we love that in, in this environment because basically all these, once the gym opens, they're turning these, these, uh, these revenue streams right back on. So 90% of their business is reoccurring uh, in nature. And we think there's multiple growth opportunities. We think they can increase member prices. Again, the, the lowest tier is $10.99 a month. That's kind of what they go out to market with to sell. $23.99 is the, the black card where you can go anywhere. We think there's something to that, right? 2,000 locations across uh, their, their base and in an environment where people are, there's more Airbnb type um, traveling and things like that, where you can essentially have a $23.99 gym membership. And uh, when you're traveling around, you where, where, where there's 2,000 locations around the nation, in a sense, you can basically be in any city and, and have a plan of fitness by you and at least just walk in and get a workout uh, while you're traveling and not have to, to think about it because your Airbnbs typically don't have gyms. And, and this is a perfect model that kind of is a solution there. Different tiers, more members per unit, increased royalty rates, and then increased black card penetration to get more people to move up to that, that, that $23.99. And again, we, we think this whole business is is really, really powerful. And there's a, there's a flywheel effect to it. There's network effects. 
that they, they build out as they build out new members. And, and this environment has forced them to move into technology. So they've really emphasized and partnered with a, a company called iFit, which puts at-home fitness in the app directly. And that's allowed them to essentially really think about the technology side, which they, they didn't before this. So we think when it's all said and done, you're going to have a company that is likely in a better position uh, post-COVID than pre-COVID because it allowed them to think a little bit more innovative to, to think about technology on, the, on one side. And then also their, their whole game is real estate and the cost of real estate. And in most cases, the gyms of any location is arguably your, your most important tenant, right? They're the one driving all the foot traffic to a location. And Planet Fitness is going to have leverage over their landlords and any gyms that are, are not doing well uh, in this environment, not Planet Fitness specific, but others, they're going to be able to take over maybe those leases in, in areas and they're well capitalized. So again, at a high, high level, those are some of the reasons why we, we like them. And that's really Planet Fitness on, on, on what makes them special in a sense, how they're benefiting from this environment, even though obviously they're impacted in this environment uh, and how they're going to come out stronger on the other side of this. And, and, and that's ultimately our, our general thesis around Planet Fitness. I mean, I, I love that. One of the themes that we have here is the, you know, the anchor tenant, the biggest, most important brands in our local communities have more leverage over landlords than they ever ha- and than they ever have. And so if you have the ability to get through this and you have access to capital, you probably have some enormous growth opportunities around the country because a lot of your competitors are probably going to go away. So you have better growth better unit economics now because you have a lot of leverage as a good anchor tenant. So, you know, even Starbucks, I hate the fact that they've had to raise so much capital to pay the dividend and all those other things. But, you know, those kinds of brands, and I'll put Planet Fitness inside of there, they have the ability to grow where maybe they might not have grown as fast without COVID. When they come out of COVID, they're probably going to grow faster because they're going to have the economics that even look better than they did pre-COVID. And, uh, and you know, listen, this market is very headline driven. So if, as we get into the fall, if the number of cases start to spike again and people start to lock up, you know, a name like Planet Fitness, even a Disney, some of the physical retailers that struggle, those are going to be subject to kind of sales probably, but you're going to get an opportunity to buy these things lower, which goes right into your put selling opportunity. So if you look at Planet Fitness where it is now and you say, hey, you know, we're selling puts, you know, 10% below that or whatever the number is, if we get some of that headline risk, you're going to get an opportunity to, to own a company at the price you want to own it just because the market kind of knee jerked and sold some of those names because... I love that everybody just trades these things in a basket. Economy starting to open and expand, let's buy those kinds of names. Economy starting to close down, let's buy the Etsy's and the Amazons of the world. But we know that it's not quite that easy. And so you get a chance to pick through the rubble and find some of those names that are being sold off that probably shouldn't be getting sold off as much. Yeah, that's a good point. Sounds good, man. Uh, I think we're up against our time just for everybody you can find more about the dynamic brand strategy. You know, we're available through SMA. You can also get the fund. You can go to Rational MF for mutual fund, rationalmf.com. And am I correct, Sean? It's avery.xyz is your homepage? Yep, avery.xyz. You can follow me on Twitter. 
uh, underscore Sean David, S-E-A-N David. And then uh, email is Sean, S-E-A-N, at averyco.com or general team at averyco.com. But those are kind of the, the basic ways to reach me. And, and if not, just reach out to Eric and, and we'll all just get on a call or we can talk more about any of the companies or strategies or thoughts around any of this stuff that you guys are doing or what we're doing. And just out of curiosity, from a minimums perspective, I know you're probably available to individuals and institutions direct, and then you're probably available on a sub-advised basis, you know, through advisors as the manager. Are, are, are you in, you know, available to, you know, if an RIA wants to take a look and, and allocate to you, they can do that through what, a Schwab, a Fidelity, TD, like where would that availability be? And, and if you can say it, what are your kind of stated minimums for them? Yeah, so we have a $500,000 minimum. Uh, again, there's different, some of it's just based on what we own, honestly, at that point in time. And where you can invest with us, we're in a lot of places, TD, NFS, uh, Interactive Brokers, and different places. Obviously, if, if you had any thoughts of it, just reach out to us and we can figure out where you are and, and where we are. Uh, and again, we're moving on a bunch of different platforms as we speak. Uh, some of the integrated ones like the smart X's of the world. And so uh, again, just reach out and, and we'll figure out where you are and we are. Yeah. Sounds good. You know, I, I last thought when I started this process of the brands, I called the the suite of products alpha brands. And that just meant these are, gr- these are leaders of consumer spending industries and they're great brands. But part of this mega brands podcast is about me introducing other great brands and great strategies and alpha strategies. And, you know, I've seen your numbers, dude. The numbers are spectacular. The story is unique. A lot of the names are not well followed, which, you know, it's why you want to pay an active fee for something like this. And I love the concentration. So I enjoy our conversations. I love following you on Twitter. I love, you know, if I happen to own something that you own, frankly, it makes me feel better when I'm following some of the smart guys with great track records. So, Always a good time. I hope you're having a good summer. And uh, thanks for your time, buddy. I, I really appreciate it. This was fun. Cool. Yeah. Anytime. We'll do it again. And uh, always love uh, communicating. And uh, the thing is, everyone doesn't realize we do this outside of the podcast. And it's, it's really cool to, uh, to, to kind of bring it to light. So I love when, when that happens and, and people get to hear kind of normal conversations just in a podcast form. So I uh, appreciate you having me on and, and we'll do it again. Well, podcasts, I don't know about you, but I tend to read a lot less now that podcasts are so prevalent. <laughs> I, I just love to be able to do whatever I'm doing and listen to the podcast versus have to sit somewhere quiet and digest some stuff on reading. So I know I'm listening to a gazillion podcasts these days. That's why I want to build up the, the content because advisors increasingly are also doing the same. And they mm-hmm. told me they love to just be able to get in the car or just, you know, even get on their Peloton bike and listen to a good investment podcast. So, good times, man. Right there. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.